0: Hey, everyone. Uh, My guest today is Gary Nessner, and he is the author of Stalling for Time. Uh, And he retired from the FBI in 2003 after a 30-year career as an investigator, instructor, and negotiator. A significant focus of his career was directed towards investigating Middle East hijackings. Um, He was also an FBI hostage negotiator for 23 years retiring as a chief of the FBI's Crisis Negotiation Unit. Uh, Gary, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh,
1: it's a pleasure to be with you today.
0: Yeah. Um, so you've been involved in quite a few uh, things when it comes to high-stakes situations and negotiate situations. Maybe we can start a little bit at your time at Waco. Um, you know, for some people who are listening, they might not be that familiar with 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 what happened, um, you know, it was a 51 day siege. Um, uh, and, you know, there was a religious cult involved. would love if you could share a little bit about that incident and then your involvement. And I have a few follow up questions from there.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, as you mentioned, I'm 30 years in the FBI and uh, a good bit of that time was uh, involved in the hostage negotiation program. And I was the last 10 years or so of my career, I was the chief negotiator for all the FBI. And, and consequently, I was involved in a lot of incidents and prison standoffs and right-wing militia sieges and terrorist hijackings, kidnappings. So I had an opportunity to do a lot of interesting things during my lengthy career. And that was uh, both challenging and rewarding, probably the biggest of which was the 1993 infamous Waco incident and. Waco, Texas, where a a religious cult um, became in conflict with the government. Another federal agency, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Farms, was attempting to execute a search warrant and an arrest warrant, and a shootout ensued between them and the Branch Davidians, and uh, four ATF agents were killed, 17 wounded, and five or six Davidians killed. So that then brought the FBI to come in to try to resolve the situation and I was the chief negotiator for that uh, situation for the first half of the 51 days. Very complex situation. Um, the primary demand that the Divisions had was for us to leave them alone and go away and because of the carnage that had already taken place that was precisely what we could not do and uh, so it had to be resolved. We uh, we, we engaged in negotiations for a protracted period of time. We were able to, uh, during the time I was there, secure the release of 35 people, including 21 children. And that was very gratifying. But, um, you know, there remained 70 some odd people in there. The um, dealing with David Crush was very uh, challenging. He was, uh, you know, very narcissistic, very controlling, manipulative. Uh, very difficult person, changes his mind about many things, uh, would range from being agreeable to being very agitated uh, throughout the process. We also had some uh, internal conflict within the FBI about the best way forward with the my team, the negotiators, wanting to uh, convince these folks to come out and other elements in the FBI being more centered on forcing them out through tactical maneuvers. So we had a great deal of conflict that, unfortunately, I believe contributed to the tragic consequence. I was replaced halfway through because I was viewed as an impediment to the tactical maneuvers, and that was true, I was. Um, And they took a harder position, they, the FBI, and no one else came out. Eventually, they decided the only tool they had left was to try to compel them to come out by inserting tear gas into the compound, which they did on April uh, 19th of 1993, 51 days into the siege. And as a result, the Davidians started fires inside the compound and end up in, I guess, what you would call a mass suicide. So it was a pretty tragic situation. A lot of lessons were learned, a lot of uh, criticism of the FBI. Some of it deserved, some of it unfair. but a very complex situation. I write about that in my book, Stalling for Time. It's probably the the biggest uh, chapter in my book and was used uh, by the Paramount Network uh, in part to produce a six part miniseries that came out a few years ago on Waco and they just finished filming the second season. So um, I was involved in those projects, but that's kind of the, the history of Waco and uh, You know, despite the tragedy, we we learned a lot of things and uh, improved the methodology by which we dealt with major crises moving forward.
0: And you mentioned that uh, David Koresh he he was not an easy person to negotiate with. Uh, He said he was narcissistic. He's controlling. Um, You know, if you know, as my listeners think through situations they've had with difficult people. Well, how did you approach a conversation with someone like him, given the kind of personality he had?
1: Well, you have to be, uh, you have to restrain your own um, frustrations and anger. And you have to realize that there will be a series of peaks and valleys that sometimes he will be cooperative and sometimes he will be stubborn and uncooperative. And rather than lash out verbally when he's being uncooperative, we try to work through those. Uh, Low periods and then get back on task and uh, try to be creative and flexible and, um, you know, don't do anything that's going to make the situation worse, you know, the medical field has the Hippocratic oath that says first, do no harm and, uh, you know, it's it's pretty similar to how we approach a negotiation that um, allowing our frustrations to uh, drive our decision making is a recipe for problems. So we, we try to avoid that. And as I mentioned earlier, we unfortunately did encounter some of that through our internal disagreements within the FBI.
0: Yeah. And how did you personally deal with the frustration or the anger? Cause you know, it, it sounds like it was uh, Dave Gresh being difficult, but then you also had a lot of internal pressure and then pressure from the outside, from the media yeah. as well.
1: We, we call that in my former life, we call that the crisis within the crisis. So, Dealing with the perpetrator, or in this case, a whole group of people certainly presented uh, many, many challenges, but also we have the challenge of our internal uh, discussions within the FBI, trying to get everyone on the same sheet of music, um, pursuing the goal in the same supportive way. And when you don't have that, it's a recipe for a lot of problems and conflict, which did arise for example you know if the negotiators are uh, are engaged in a positive conversation which is leading to someone being released and then without coordination the tactical team does something uh, physically aggressive it obviously sends a different signal and um, we always used to say you're going to believe the nice man on the phone or the man in the tank that's just run over your car which one is going to have more impact on you and And that's why if those two efforts and others are not carefully coordinated, it can create obstacles to
0: resolution. And in these situations, how much do you communicate about the scope of your authority when you're talking to uh, uh, a kidnapper or an extremist? I know in another example in the book, you actually tell someone, "Hey." I'm gonna check with my boss to make yeah, sure we, that, you
1: know. I mean, we, we, we always, regardless of the type of situation, we, we try to project that we are not the ultimate decision maker. And um, for example, I might say something, you know, you know, help me to help you. Uh, you know, if you want certain things from us in order for me to be able to convince my boss to do this, you know, I need your help by having you demonstrate some good behavior. You know, and then if we're asked a very tough or challenging issue, we, we have time to uh, defer it to the boss. Um, there's an old sort of humorous adage in negotiations that if something good happens, we, the negotiators, take credit for it. If something bad happens, we blame it on our boss. You know, and that's, you know, that that's an old tried and tested method. You know, like, I'm sorry that happened. I didn't have control over that. You know. Well, they don't understand what's going on. They're not having this nice conversation with you like we are. So we're trying to maintain our relationship with the people we're dealing with. And so when something bad happens, we try to distance ourselves from that. And uh, that's pretty, pretty standard practice.
0: With uh, David Koresh, you said you had to be creative and flexible while dealing with him, uh, partly because of the highs and lows. Um, could you share some examples of what that looked like?
1: Yeah, I mean, we had to convince uh, David Koresh that we were a different agency than the ATF and that we weren't there to assault them and harm them, that we were there to help them come out of this. So there were times where as a demonstration of good faith, we sent in milk for the children or uh, one occasion we sent in photographs of ourselves, uh, videotapes saying, hi David, my name's Gary, I have a family, here's their picture. Mm -hmm. Um, I love my family. I know you love yours, and you know to try to personalize ourselves. We would address concerns he would have. He would say, "One, um, if I surrender and I go to jail, will I be able to meet with my followers?" So you know, had a letter from the sheriff saying, "Yes, you'll be allowed to meet with them in jail." This is an official document. You know, any he raised uh, a concern or an issue that is something we could address, we tried to. Demonstrate to him our willingness to try to, um, to to meet his needs in a satisfactory manner. So uh, that's the kind of thing we do, and and for the most part, th- those aren't things that are typically done in most negotiations. But we we did them here, and um, you know, in a in a real hostage situation, there's there's bargaining. You someone holds a hostage and they are trying to force you to do something and threatening to harm the hostage if you don't do it. Um, but you have some leverage because they need you to do whatever it is that they want. And you need them because they hold your hostage. Well, in a situation like Waco, it's not a hostage situation. They're all in their home. They believe in David Koresh. They embrace the religious ideology that he he holds. And, um, you know, it's very hard to influence people when they don't want or need anything from you. And the way you do that is to try to create a relationship with trust, straightforward, genuine, honest. Uh, and that of course becomes challenging when others on your team may be sending a different signal.
0: Um, your example about sending photos of your of yourself and your family, it's I think that's so out of the box and um, even a little risky, I guess, because you know you're pretty putting your family out there. How did how did you how did you think of that did you have to get someone's approval or how did that come about
1: well obviously we 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 had to get some uh ultimate approval to send it in but that was really not a problem at at that juncture but um i don't remember who first came up with that idea but um we just thought it would be a way to demonstrate not only to crush but to followers who we allowed to see the tape here's who we are Uh, to humanize ourselves. And yes, to my knowledge, it's never been done before or after and would probably be uh, viewed with skepticism by some instructors. But again, you have to be innovative and flexible in in these situations. We also sent a videotape in of the children who had come out and they were being held at a, a social services home. And We wanted the mothers inside to know that, hey, we're not shipping your children off. They're here waiting for you. You need to come out and resume your parental responsibilities and to demonstrate that here, we're showing your kids are here waiting for you. Because we felt as though that Koresh had, to some extent, allowed the kids to leave so that he could ensure the allegiance of their parents to fight to the death for him. And we wanted to break that stranglehold that he had over them and remind them that they're parents and they have children that they love and need them. So, again, a very innovative thing that I don't think has ever been done before. Um, and, and we did a lot of stuff like that. And, you know, in one respect, uh, Waco is both the uh, situation in my career that I'm the most proud of and also the most troubled by because of the way it ended. But in terms of the innovation and creativity of the negotiation team, I think it was without parallel.
0: Mm-hmm. This this question might be a little out of the field here. You know, when you were sending those videotapes, it made me think of the present day where um, information is so distributed, so wild in a sense, right, where you have these, in, in crisis situations you have misinformation campaigns from parties people putting things on social media and so on how like what are some lessons that people can draw in terms of just the information war applied to like today's context where we have things like twitter and facebook and linkedin
1: well i think sometimes you may have to break through the you know, the the cloud of misinformation. And the best way you do that is through being consistently genuine. And, you know, for example, you might say, I know you've heard this or you've been reading these reports. Let me demonstrate to you that that's not true. That's not the case. Um, And everything you do is aimed at trying to promote and expand the relationship and the trust. People come out, surrender as it were, because they trust the the person that they're talking to, and believe that when representations are made that they'll be honored, and so we don't lie. Uh, we certainly try not to lie, and uh, you know that those are just generally good good approaches that we take.
0: I think there's a there's a there's a part about not lying, but I also get the impression that you also don't promise something you couldn't deliver, right?
1: Yeah, we certainly that's very dangerous. I mean, if you, the person asked for something, you say, oh, sure, we can do that. And then later on, obviously you're unable to, for whatever reason, then you have really lost your credibility. So, you know, let's say in a normal hostage situation, a guy's in a bank with hostages and he wants a getaway car. I mean, as a negotiator, you'd never say no problem. We'll get the car for you. You know, that's going to come back and bite you. What you would say is something like, well, I, I hear that you want some transportation. I know that's gonna be difficult, but I'll certainly let my boss know that this is something you've asked about. So what have I said? I've acknowledged what he's asked for. I haven't in any way, shape or form promised it to him or encouraged him to believe that it's going to happen. And in fact, I've, I've planted a, some doubt in his mind by saying, oh boy, that's, that's gonna be difficult. You know, There's a lot of people out here in the streets I'm not sure if that's gonna be possible, but I hear what you're saying, you know? And so those are the kinds of ways we try to deflect the troublesome issues.
0: It also sounds like there's a part of empathy or like just really good listening as as part of these conversations. Um, How do you do that when the person on the other line is someone who is really dangerous or someone who's done some really terrible things?
1: Well, you know, even the most despicable people in the world, they want to be respected and they want to be treated uh, with dignity. Um, And you'll find even the worst characters I've ever dealt with in my life. There's probably something about them that is likable. Um, Or you can encourage some positive aspect of their life in in your engagement with them. You know, you know, it's always tough to deal with people who are inherently unlikable and, uh, people that in normal life, you, you probably wouldn't have a whole lot of respect for because of the way they've lived their life, the actions they've taken, the decisions they've made, but you know, you try to put that aside and remember what your goal is. My, my goal is to save lives, not just hostages or victims, but even the perpetrator, you know, I I generally want to see no one get hurt. And, um, so, you know, that doesn't, Always occur. There, there are situations that don't end as perfectly as we'd like, but that's the goal we keep in mind, and everything we do tries to further that end.
0: That makes sense. I want to take a step back uh, for a second. in In your book, it reading, I got the impression that there were there were two sort of. trends happening uh, that uh, that sort of shape the context of your career. One is, you know, when you started your career or maybe uh, what your parents did, there was a trust in institutions in America that throughout your career has eroded a little bit. And then there's this big debate around, you know, the use of negotiation versus the use of force that seemed pretty prominent in in the examples you shared. Um, How did you navigate these two trends through your career?
1: Well, they're they're kind of unrelated in a sense. I mean, the the, the erosion of the respect with which some of our institutions are held is certainly an ongoing thing. I mean, with the hearings we have going on and the recent high tense political acrimony that's going on in the United States and then even around the world with Ukraine and Russia and so forth, it's... um, there's always going to be challenges and uh, there's always going to be people who have strongly held opinions and realizing that and trying to navigate a thoughtful uh, discussion requires that you listen to their side of the story or their perspective. You don't necessarily have to agree with it, but you acknowledge it and paraphrase it and acknowledge how they feel. And that's the pathway through which they may give you the opportunity to share your ideas and thoughts, but only, only if you've demonstrated that respect first. I mean, if you start off by attacking each other, the other issue you mentioned was the the tactical negotiation um, conflict that's kind of as old as the institution. I mean, law enforcement is essentially a paramilitary organization and people who join law enforcement typically are very action oriented people. And, Um, they also don't like it based on their authority when they ask people to do things and people say, no, um, it, it gets us angry. And oftentimes we move to our force card quicker than we need to, um, you know, and, and so it takes training and and self-control for law enforcement officers, crisis managers and negotiators to realize that, you know, more often than not, we're going to get more, cooperation from people by treating them in an appropriate way and uh, you know there's a thing we call the paradox of power and that is the harder you push the more likely it is you get to resistance and it's a it's a premise that uh, people often forget Uh, you know police officers say wait a minute I have a badge I have a gun I have authority I've got training Um, and you're saying you're not going to do what I tell you to do? Well, we're going to see about that. You know, I've asked you nice and now I'm going to make you do it. That's just a demonstration of someone that's lost a little bit of self-control. You know, we we have a saying in negotiations, don't get even, get your way. So be smart. You know, what's my objective? My, my objective is to get you to come out of your house and not kill your family. OK, what's the best way to do that? Uh, yelling at you, embarrassing you, threatening you is probably not the best way to do that.
0: Is there a time in your career where you thought both approaches working in tandem work really well for your situation?
1: Yeah, there are some situations, uh, hostage situations particularly, prison riots, where the potential threat of force um, is a powerful incentive for people to communicate with us. In essence, you're saying you know, deal with the nice man on the phone, or deal with these guys, and you don't want to deal with these guys. You know, I, we had a, a prison riot many years ago in Atlanta, and um, there was a meeting set up between some inmate representatives, and we purposely marched them down the hall, lined with these big, burly, well-equipped SWAT officers. Didn't say a word, didn't Say these are the guys are going to come in and kick your ass. We, we just visibly let them see the alternative to negotiations. And, you know, that I've certainly used that in many situations, and it's popularly used. We try not to get too overt in our, uh, in our threat, but contrasting the benefits of cooperation through the risk of resistance can be a helpful tool in certain kinds of situations, not all.
0: You've titled your book, Stalling for Time. Can you share why you chose that title?
1: Yeah, when I went through my initial training very early on in in the development of hostage or crisis negotiations, um, the first three words on my that I took as notes were stall for time. One of the instructors said, You know, we're trying to slow the process down, not purposely just for the sake of elongating time, but to allow emotions to cool, to um, gather better resources, to uh, collect better information that tells us what's going on. Maybe a hostage comes out and amplifies what we know. Uh, Maybe we need additional resources that are on the way, but haven't gotten here yet. There's a whole lot of reasons, not the least of which is with the passage of time. People's uh, frustrations and anger tends to subside if we communicate properly. As long as we're not doing anything to ratchet up uh, their reaction, then time alone can wear you out. I mean, holding a hostage—you know, holding hostages in a bank, being worried about the police outside—you know—is a is a pretty tiring uh, task, uh, and it's physically wearing. And you know. I'll give you another example. In several prison riots I've worked that last about eight or 10 days that the inmates were offered on day one, the exact deal they accepted on day eight. No change, no change. Well, why didn't they accept it on day one? Well, they weren't ready yet. Time hadn't passed. They hadn't uh, gone several days without food and being able to engage in their normal activities and feeling the stress of the situation. Are the cops coming in here to get me at any moment? All of these things and more tend to begin to wear down the resolve of the people we're dealing with and bring them to a point where they consider a broader range of options. There's times where I've been in a situation and said, made a suggestion, I think we ought to try doing this or that. And somebody would say, well, we tried that three days ago. And I said, well, that was three days ago. You know, don't you think a lot's changed in three days? You know, it's the old saying: if first you don't succeed, try, try again. Um, so that's kind of the basic premise. And I mentioned the medical field's motto of first do no harm," the Hippocratic Oath. The negotiator's motto is, is sort of: if you do nothing else, stall for time. Um, you know, there are a few rare exceptions where time works against you, but you know, in the very high 90 percentiles, the passage of time generally leads to better outcomes. So that's why I named the book that.
0: Yeah. I think you have a quote, and I'm paraphrasing, um, a good negotiator slows things down to speed, to speed things up in the negotiation, which I sure really liked.
1: I don't remember that quote, but um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 typically I wouldn't advocate for speeding things up unless there's a, wounded hostage dying inside the compound you know then you have time constraints on you pretty pretty rare situation but but generally when we slow down we tend to make more thoughtful informed decisions it also gives us time perhaps the most important component gives us time to develop a relationship of trust you know you don't show up and i say you know Assad we've been talking two minutes and uh, I'm a really nice guy and you're going to surrender to me in about six hours. So why don't you just do it now? I mean, I haven't really earned the right to, you know, make that appeal to you. But maybe after 12 hours, we've been talking and you've told me about your problems and your concerns and your experiences in life. And I've acknowledged them and demonstrated that I'm not here to make your life worse. I'm a, I'm a good guy, you know, and you, you have some confidence that when I say things that they will be delivered that all takes a little bit of time for that relationship to percolate and and to come to the surface. And that's when we see people say something like, well, you know, Gary, I, I just, I don't know how to get out of this. And when I hear that, that's a magic uh, clue or cue to me that now he's seeking my opinion. And I might say something, well, I don't pretend to have all the answers, but if I was in your situation, I think the best course would be to put your gun down and come on out. You know. Hurting yourself is going to hurt your family. It's going to uh, not resolve your problem, all kinds of things. you know. So, so there are markers where we can begin to discern that through our patient efforts, we are beginning to enhance the relationship that ultimately is going to lead to cooperation.
0: Are there tactics or strategies you've used to increase the time you had? Because I'd imagine even on your end, you had superiors that were like, hey, let's solve this as quickly as possible.
1: Oh, sure. I mean, that comes more into play. Uh, I've worked a lot of kidnappings overseas. And, you know, in the past, we have purposely coached the negotiator to buy time on the phone. And I just did a little bit of it for you now. Just by slowing down what you're saying and for example repeating have you learned any techniques to slow things down well you see i've just added several minutes to the conversation and if you do that throughout a dialogue now that several minutes turns into five minutes and turns into 10 minutes and next thing you know the authorities are able to trace where the phone call went or you know, whatever it might be. So sometimes we'll purposely do that sort of thing. Um, It's also helpful in that when we go slow, we, we want to make sure we understood, you know, Assad, we've just had a long conversation. Let me, let me go back through it and make sure I understand what you've been telling me. And I repeat it. And, And I may say, did, did I get that right? Do I understand? And you may say, well, yeah, but I'm not really confused. I'm just angry. Well, now I've learned something important that the critical feeling that you're having is anger. It's not confusion. Um, That's okay. I didn't lose a thing, did I? I I actually gained more specificity in terms of what I understand it is that's
0: motivating your behavior. That was a great demonstration of slowing things down. (laughs) Now, did you, how did you train yourself to do that? Was it just through all these Well, you know,
1: I I, I certainly would not complain uh, uh, or complain. I certainly would not suggest that I invented all these approaches and techniques. I mean, the evolution of negotiation has been a long, uh, steady period of growth. And a lot of uh, really wise and smart people have come up with ideas and concepts. And, you know, we've tried to pull from those experiences the best things that we think can be taught to a negotiator to enhance their skill levels and achieve the result we want. You know, One of the things that's often un, unheralded in law enforcement is that negotiators succeed in the high 90%. Uh, I mean, there's almost nothing in law enforcement that even approaches that statistical success. And yet we have to constantly, for whatever reason, justify what we do. And part of that is because what we do in the minds of many others in law enforcement is sort of gray and murky and it's not black and white law enforcement. We like black and white. You do these three things. This happens. That happens. Boom, boom, boom. We like a cookbook. We want a recipe. You know, stir in three ounces of that, you know, fold in this, put in the oven, at 350, keep it there for 20 minutes. We like that precision because that's the kind of people we are. When the reality, you know, you say, well, what are you going to do, negotiator? So, well, yeah, I'm going to talk to the guy for a while and try to let him know I'm not a jerk, and you know, see if I can help him. Well, it doesn't sound very scientific. It sounds fuzzy and you know, vague, and and it's uncomfortable for for some in law enforcement management to deal with that. But you would think the track record alone would be more than convincing that, hey, you know, the proof is in the pudding. You know, we've uh, we've got the goods. to to show. You know, the main reason we negotiate, uh, to be quite candid with you, is we certainly want to see hostages and victims come out alive. We want to see the perpetrator not harmed if we can, but we primarily do it to keep police officers safe. If if you're holding hostages in your office building because you're mad they're firing you, whatever it is, I certainly want to see them come out alive. I want to see you come out alive, but I don't want to have to send in police officers to confront you if you're in there with a dangerous weapon. Because what we all know is that when people with guns go up against other people with guns, bad things almost always happen. And the bad things don't always just happen to the bad guys. You know, sometimes we end up shooting a hostage by mistake, or we end up shooting one of our own by mistake. I mean, there's all kinds of tragic consequences that you know, preferably should be avoided. So if our negotiation efforts are successful, then our people go home at night to their families and we don't have to undertake that dangerous operation. There's more than enough situations where we don't have a choice and we have to take action. But to the extent we can avoid that, we should. On that note, there, you know, if
0: tragedy does happen, how, do you have any advice on how to deliver bad news to superiors or teammates?
1: Well, we, you know, we try to do critical incident debriefs after a challenging situation. And if there's been a loss of life, it's obviously um, extraordinarily tragic, particularly if we lose one of our own. And um, you know, in addition to feeling the pain of, of the loss of a friend or colleague, we at the same time had to examine what we did to determine was this the result of some mistakes we made? Uh, is there something for us to learn here? You know, tragedies, uh, you know, lead to a lot of consequences, but one of the positive things they can lead to is a re examination of your methodology and, and uh, are we doing something wrong? You know, can we uh, modify what we're doing in order that we don't make this mistake again? those sort of after action critiques do happen. They don't always happen to the extent that I would like to see. But also in our field, when mistakes are made and life is lost, there's typically lawsuits and civil suits and sometimes criminal action. So, you know, all of that comes into play in the law enforcement. I mean, it's, a, you know, in the business world, when, when you make a mistake like this, you know, you lose the deal, big deal. You know, <laughs> but... Um, with us, it has potential life and death consequences. And so, you know, that's why I try to front load that when we're getting ready as an organization to do something that is, that I would consider high risk. You know, I always advocate that we ask ourselves some key questions. Is this necessary? Do we have to do this? Do we have to do it now? Um, Has something changed from two hours ago when everything was stable to now where you're saying, we're gonna go in and get this guy? Because, and there's other questions we ask. And, And the reason is by going through that process, we make sure that we can justify what we're doing, not only in a court of public opinion, because we're public servants. We want the public to be confident that the police department, the FBI, whoever, took action only because they were left with no choice, not because they simply had a capability to hurt somebody. So, and then there's also, can we defend it in a court of law? So these are the things that I think we have to keep in mind. And and if we have the opportunity to ask ourselves these questions, you know, sometimes we fail to have the adequate answers that justify going forward. And I've always said that negotiators are often that voice at the scene that raises those questions. Um, You know, if you're on a tactical team and and all you do is practice, you know, the dynamic assaults that they do and throw your flashbang grenades and break through the door and do that stuff, it's fun, it's exciting, it's challenging. And you always think you're going to be successful. We go in with a high degree of confidence that the only person going to get hurt here is Mr. Bad Guy. The reality is quite different. so whether they realize it or not, it's our job as negotiators to keep them from doing something that could be avoided.
0: Even if you don't necessarily have the authority in that room or situation.
1: No, I mean, there, there's typically three key players, leadership positions in a crisis. There's the the, the head negotiator. Uh, there's the, the head of the tactical team, and then there's an overall commander. There's various structures, but that's the basic uh, triad of command. And, uh, you know, so the on scene ultimate decision maker, the commander, has to weigh the advice and assessment of the negotiators and the advice of the tactical team. A negotiator may say, This is not going well. We think this guy's probably going to kill one of these hostages he's holding which time the commander turns to the tactical leader and says, my negotiators aren't very optimistic about that, what capabilities? And the tactical commander says, okay, I have a high degree of confidence that we can get in there very quickly and neutralize them. That set of uh, informational inputs would probably lead to a justification to take tactical action. You could also have where the negotiators have that same assessment, the tactical commander says, yeah, we don't have any real risk-effective way to get in there. That place is built like a fort. It'll take us five minutes to get in there, and which time you could kill the hostages. All right, so now it means, negotiators, you got to get back in the game and keep trying to forestall this potential violence. You know, there may be other times where negotiators just say, you know, we're making good progress, and let me articulate why. Here are the indicators of progress that we see you can't just say yeah things are good or things are bad you've got to be able to you know use a certain level of specificity to say yeah we've we've, we're making really good progress here and based on that it becomes a real challenge for the commander to say well despite that we're going to go in and do something risky because later on if it's adjudicated in in a court of law or in the court of opinion you know the questions raised well You went in there to get the bad guy, but you ended up killing this innocent woman. Uh, Why did you go in? And then the negotiators on the stand and say, well, I don't know why they went in either. We were doing (laughs) a good job. I mean, it's it's just a terrible situation. So, you know, good, effective police departments, you know, have really uh, extensive uh, discussion between these components and to come up with a consensus that's typically the best way forward. But sometimes, as we had in in Waco, uh, there there can be conflict. There can be differences of opinion. And that's why the on-scene commander, very often the tactical leader and the negotiating leader will be of the same mind. They'll give the same advice. But sometimes it's contradictory. And then that person, the boss, making the big bucks, as we say, they have to make the decision. Um, I believe they should almost always default to negotiations unless a clear articulable threat can be made. You know, we don't don't go in because we're tired or hungry or frustrated. We have to be able to tell people, hey, our failure to go in, it's sad that this hostage was killed uh, during our rescue attempt. However, we were convinced that our failure to go in was certainly going to lead to her demise, whatever it might be. We've got to be able to make that
0: case. you've had a you know long distinguished career what surprised you the most
1: i'm not sure if I, I that's a pretty broad question i mean i think i think what surprises me uh is the fact that what we do as negotiators is still very often under appreciated and undervalued um as our communication skills in generally for police officers, I'll give you an example. You know, every police department in this country, police officers who carry weapons in the United States typically undergo a great deal of firearms training, uh, training on how to apprehend somebody, make an arrest, do all these kinds of things. And all of that is absolutely necessary and important. But how much time do we really devote to communication skills? My premise being that If a police officer is effective in using their verbal skills, they can diffuse many situations. They can avoid the confrontations that so often end end badly with people being harmed. So I would like to see in law enforcement writ large a a greater focus on teaching those kinds of skills.
0: I know we're almost coming up on time. Um, It's been a pleasure chatting with you, where can people learn more about your work?
1: Well, thanks. And I've enjoyed this. My, I have a website, you know, www.garynessneralloneword.com. And it has on there other podcast interviews I've done, articles I've written, uh, notices about uh, video interviews I've done and uh, television programs I've been interviewed in, so forth and so on. Um, that's the primary source and there's links for you know, hacking, uh, connecting someone up to Amazon or somewhere else if they want to purchase the book. And, uh, yeah, thank you for, for pointing that out. I'm, I'm always happy to engage with folks who are interested in this and uh, you know, help be sort of an ambassador for the negotiation profession.